if you look at a job listing or in you're in you're an interview and someone says oh you're going to get a an m2 macbook pro when you join if that is anything to do with your decision making process to join that company you need to check yourself because that's not important right you need to be understand like what is the company doing what impact does this have on society and am i okay with that does that fit with what makes me comfortable because if you find a company that is doing something that's positive to society and you are comfortable with it it's going to make you feel so much happier in the long run hey everyone i'm mike and this is imperfect that was a clip from today's episode with phil bennett what are we chatting about today? Well, if you're like me, you work a 9-to-5 job, or at least you have at some point. And that comes with certain trade-offs and challenges, especially around time versus money, and generally trying to do something which is actually personally meaningful to you, whilst also making a positive impact on society and also getting you paid well. Especially in the tech industry where I work, I find that much easier said than done. Thankfully, Phil has done a lot of thinking on this topic, so much that he has actually written a book called Punk Leadership, It is a leadership book and a leadership model heavily inspired by the punk scene of the 70s. Essentially, what Phil is saying in this book is that we broke everything, especially in the tech industry. Everything is broken. There is a way forward. There is a way to work on things which are meaningful and positive and impactful. In this episode, we dive into the specific techniques on how to do that, how to make sure that you are doing something meaningful to you and good for the world. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. So welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. No worries. So what I want to ask you, actually, you're just about to publish your book, right? Punk mm-hmm. Leadership. Yes, maybe. Maybe. Maybe by the time that this is released, um, yes. it's already available. Yes. I mean, the question is like, I haven't decided yet whether I'm going to self-publish it or get a publisher to do it. Well, you, you don't decide whether you get a publisher involved, right? They're the ones that make the decision, but I'm considering self-publishing. So if I self-publish, I hope the book will be out before this podcast's out. But if not, who knows? Yes. Are you leaning towards self-publishing or...? I'm unsure. If I do it myself, I have to be super confident the product is good and finished and professional, which I think I can get close to, but I don't know if it's close enough to where people would expect it to be. Obviously, if I got a publisher involved and professionals and editors and designers and typesetters and all those things that I need to do myself, I know that that's going to be a a professional product. So I, I think it's likely that I'll self-publish just because of the speed of it. If you go to a publisher, it can take two, three years to go through the sort of final editing, designing process. And it's the content of the book, I feel, is is probably too late in two or three years. Like I need to get the book out sooner rather than later. I, I, I read a preview of your book and one of the things I noted down is that there is a definitely a, a tone of urgency and the tone of, mm-hmm. I mean, it is called punk leadership. I don't want to say anger, but there is a frustration. It's a frustration for sure. Yeah. Maybe on that point, you can dig into that a bit more. Like, what is this book about? I should have a really good answer to that question, but I don't think I have a really succinct one. So let me try and talk through the kind of journey that I went through with the book. And the first thing is, I'm really concerned about how misused technology is in society at the moment. There are a number of examples of really potentially world-changing technologies that had incredible intent and incredible positive, potentially positive impacts on society. And they've been corrupted uh, for whatever reasons. And the more 
you look at these topics, and, I, and I'll use a couple of examples, cryptocurrency, social media, uh, platform economy, all of these technologies could have changed people's lives for the better, but they didn't. And they could have changed society for the better, but they didn't. And that has started to really bother me quite a lot. And I was kind of like, right, what can I, what can I do? What can I try and do to change this? And I was like, well, I can myself consider this and make actions and based on what I do. But I wondered whether it was possible to try and inspire some kind of movement in other people on this topic and try and help them realize that this is what's going on. And I think it's going on, a lot of it is going on due to inaction of tech leadership. And I think higher level tech leadership, but also middle manager tech leadership, I think we get too distracted by other topics and we're not really considering what our technology is being used for and the ultimate impact that the technology is having. So that was bothering me. And then I thought, how do I wrap this idea up in a palatable topic? And I can't remember what the trigger was, but I was, I think, reading about a history of The Clash. So The Clash is a a British punk band, started in the 70s. And the more I read about The Clash and then started digging into the history of punk music in general, the more I could see this parallel with the the way that the society was at that point and the way society is now and their reaction to that society and to an extent the music industry at that time modeling the music industry as the tech industry so i was like ah, okay cool so i can this is a story that parallels it so the book is called punk leadership and what it does is it tells stories from the punk history and then it parallels how we can do similar things how we can take inspiration from those in the tech industry and do better basically the other thing for context here is so so you're of course in the tech industry right so oh yeah 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 so i am a i am a leader in the tech industry yes i think humble by saying just leader right because you're also i would say relatively high up in the management channel you're a director right now i i yeah i guess for a couple of years i've been a senior leader in the tech industry for sure i mean it's definitely a very catchy title right like punk leadership Mm -hmm. i think I, i don't know when I think of punks, I'm not necessarily thinking of like typical leader roles. I'm also not uh-huh. thinking of corporate, right? It's, it's sort of the opposite of yeah. corporate. I, I assume that is literally the point. Yeah, that it's essential. So what does a leader do? In uh... Let's go back. What's the objective of a leader? Honestly, I'd probably say get shit done. Yeah, it's it, the objective, the core kind of objective of leadership is to get people to head in a certain direction right? It's to inspire, guide, coach, whatever, whatever the tools are that you use, what you're trying to do is get people to move towards some end point. And however, you can, there's a million different ways you can practice leadership, you can poke people with cattle prods and make them do it, or you can very gently massage them into doing something. What punks did is they created a revolution, a cultural revolution, at the time that punk started, the, uh, the punk kicked off into two places at the, roughly the same time. It started early on in New York and then about a year later kicked off in London. And economically and society, societally, at that point, both of those countries were really suffering. And who was really, really suffering were young people who were very, who were really struggling to, to gain employment at that time. Like there was just no jobs for them. There was uh, economic chaos and 
they just felt really disenfranchised. So what punks did is they gave these teens a voice, these young people a voice to scream out and kick back and reject what was going, reject the current status quo. And they fought back. And the people who were leading that were the members of these punk bands. They were creating this kind of like a revolution in sorts. And actually, if you model it as a revolution, like punk has still a significant influence in all sorts of creative areas now. So the kind of anti-design, anti-rules, anti-establishment kind of aesthetic and goals and the way they ran, you can still see now it's a big influence in most creative spheres. So they were leaders, they were leading this cultural revolution. What they achieved was a shift in all creative culture globally. And what we're trying to achieve as tech leads is to deliver technology that has an impact and a positive impact. So that's why I think there is a strong parallel between those two those two things. So you're saying the the main uh, message, of, or one of the main messages of the book would be about making a kind of making a change. Yeah, it's looking like the the course. The two things that are happening that I think are happening now and did happen in the punk industry is the current status quo sucks, <laughs> and we need to do something about it and and initiate some kind of change. And the punks initiated a significant change. In what way does it suck now? It sucks because. I think we do it's for a million reasons. I can't summarizing this is difficult. We keep breaking things. Like there is this um this whole concept and and this silicon valley concept around disruption. Disruption is good and and we need to disrupt whatever like everyone people actually funny enough people talk about it less now but there was always you know 10 years ago disruption was a big thing we're going to disrupt the banking industry we're going to disrupt the music industry blah 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 but at the same time we've disrupted society people are disconnected people are unhappy people are struggling to, to to deal with these kind of things things like the platform economy is making people homeless it's making people in really really bad situations and there's an example in my book it's making people kill themselves because they're feeling too burdened by the fact that they can't provide for their family anymore because of this situation the the things we're doing are having serious societal impact and that sucks because they're kind of happening by accident no one is intending these things to happen no one wants no when when the people at Meta or Facebook said, right, we're going to create a social media platform, they were creating a social media platform. They wanted people to be connected. But what it's done is it's created a significant divide with people. The more technology connects us, the more it actually socially divides us. You talked about the platform economy. Mm-hmm. Here you're referring to companies like like Uber and Airbnb. Airbnb, like Uber, like those kind of like Etsy. Etsy maybe is not, <laughs> that's probably a bit of a, a, a soft target, but like <laughs> Uber, yeah, Uber, Airbnb, the delivery companies as well, like ones that are creating these kind of gig economy type situations where people are, um, we, the the whole concept was when they started was they wanted to put the power back in the hand of the individuals, right? So the people could work where they wanted to, when they wanted to, but what that's done is because there is no protection for people, it drives down the cost of labor massively. And it also then, so that's with the gig economy type stuff. And then if you look at Airbnb, 
what it's done is it's disrupted significantly people's ability to live in areas that they they would traditionally or historically have lived in by driving up rental costs and property prices in more desirable areas pushing out certain people who would have been there for a for a long time so that's the this platform economy impact is coming from those kind of things i also want to get to the practicalities a bit because mm-hmm. i mean it's a really interesting point and i'm sure so for the context, I also work in tech. I'm also in a management position in a big tech company. I'm sure that anyone working in tech has gone through this. Well, I, I hope most of the people in tech have gone through this process of, I'm an engineer, I'm a manager, I need a job. I don't want to work on something that's not valuable to the world. I don't want to work on something that doesn't have meaning. I want to work on something impactful. Mm-hmm. As you said, all of these companies started with positive intentions of, let's disrupt the world, let's make a positive impact, let's give power to the people. Uh I'm going to pause you there. <laughs> Whether the company started with that intention, I don't know. Okay. Because all companies start with the intention of making money. Right. And I think there's, we need to differentiate between what the companies are intending and what the engineers within the company are intending. Okay. So all companies, or not all companies, non-profit companies, charities and stuff obviously don't. But any, like... 98 i don't that's i'm making up numbers now but (laughs) a a large number of companies are profit making companies their single overarching goal is to make money uber's number one goal is not to provide you with an easy cheap taxi service uber's number one goal is to provide money to their shareholders and their stakeholders they then decide work out how they do that but that's not their number one goal the thing that they are delivering is not their number one goal so basically you're saying because of capitalism, it, it probably wasn't their original goal to make a positive difference and because money had to be the primary motivator. Whether they, whether the original leaders of these companies deluded themselves into thinking that the thing that they were trying to do was the primary goal, I don't know. But the company is an entity. The company's goal is to make money. Full stop. Isn't that also our primary motivation for having jobs as well? Uh... Is it, though? And if it is, then maybe that's something we need to question. I mean, okay, I I guess I wanted to be controversial and ask that question, but, I mean, would you do your job right now if they didn't pay you? I I couldn't do my job right now if they didn't pay me. Okay, fair enough. I I guess I would have to do another job. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe you see where I'm going. I'm, I'm kind of leading back to my question of, like, okay, let's say I see that there's a problem, right? Like, I'm like, okay... So I see that there's a lot of companies where maybe I don't believe in their um, mission or I see that ultimately they're just out to make money. So I can't mm-hmm. necessarily rely on them making like perfectly valued choices or like being value led. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do need a job. And my skills mm-hmm. happen to be I'm very good at engineering and mm-hmm. I'm good at talking and I can combine those and be a manager. And, you know, let's say, OK, I'm in Berlin. I'm looking for a job. Uh, I get a pretty good offer for one. I'm like, OK, well. You know, I, f- I feel like everyone is making that kind of trade-off in their mind of like, okay, well, maybe it's not an absolute dream in impact, but it's also, it doesn't seem too bad, and the money seems pretty good. Mm-hmm. So on some level, I need to make a conscious trade-off of like, yeah, okay, cool, I'll do, I'll do that one. Mm-hmm. It, it's not that bad. Yeah. So I would love us to be in a situation where my book inspired everybody to, like, create if it created sort of like rebellions in places like Google and Meta and whatever, and that changed those companies from like the inside out. Or tomorrow, everybody who read the book went and started a, 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 a company or something or did something that had a, 
only only positive impact on society that would be amazing however i know that's not the reality of the situation right everyone has to make compromises everyone is in a in a certain there are restrictions on your life that means you have to you 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 have to like we can only eat and survive if we have money in this society oh that's not entirely true there are potentially ways that if you are if you really want to make an effort you can be completely self-sustaining but in reality you need cash to get to that point anyway first so i know that and i know that this is it there is parameters but i want there's two things that i want is i want people to can like make some move towards this if it's like challenge a decision that's made in their workplace or think about something or potentially push people over the edge to where like right, no i'm gonna go and found this company that i think will be really positive for society and do something good so that's one thing and then the second thing is one thing i really want to do with this book is challenge that conscious decision that you mentioned because i know because i don't i don't think that that many engineers are joining companies making conscious decisions against the value their values against the company values so you think not many people are actually doing this whole okay, well, that company seems pretty... I mean, I can understand the value in that product. Could actually be nice for the world, I guess. Maybe not revolutionary, but nice. Mm-hmm. Like, do you think they're not doing that? I don't think so, because I think... And I'm I, maybe I'm painting everybody with the same brush, but from my experience, historically what I've done is I've... There are obviously companies that I would love to work for that are doing great, but they don't hire, and I, I, I know I can't do it. So I need to take a compromise, and I need to go and work for a company that maybe does something that doesn't necessarily perfectly align with what I believe in, like, philosophically. And how I've previously justified that is by saying, oh, like, when I was really junior, I was like, oh, it's cool, interesting technology that I want to use. So I'm going to go and learn how to use this technology, and then it's kind of make better for my career later. Or when I got more mature and into more leadership positions, I justified it by saying, oh, but, like, I'm as a leader helping people get better at what they do and I focused on the people side of the the thing and I was completely I really blocked out what the company was actually doing I didn't even think about it like it just got to a point where I was like no I like I I think I realized kind of early on in my career that the technology wasn't important and that was something that I shouldn't make a decision to join a company but then I just kind of pretended like it was because I and, I, and it's, it's a cold part of me. I want people to be better versions of themselves. I want to help people be better versions of themselves. But I wasn't really thinking about what then those people were doing with the new skills and the new skill sets that I was giving them, right? Or not giving them, that sounds very egotistical, helping them generate, helping them build themselves, right? So, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I have a funny suspicion that not many people are really making that consideration of how much of their personal views overlap with their company's views when they join a company to be honest now that you say that if i think back of my own career i feel like this view also changed over time i don't know what it is experience or age or a combination or i'm not sure privilege getting more comfortable and then it's the hierarchy of needs right you start looking at one level higher and thinking Mm -hmm. okay what's Mm -hmm. next i'm wondering you said for you you also for a long time didn't really think about that stuff you you were more Mm -hmm. focused on okay my impact is helping people Mm -hmm. enabling them to grow all of that stuff it sounds like at some point it changed. I think, yes, it did. And in the book, I, it was, there was a pivotal point in my life where this specifically changed. And it's the first part of the book. I went to San Francisco. I was lucky enough to go on a trip to San Francisco. And it was, the, it was 
the most miserable experience of my entire life. It was maybe, no, that's probably exaggerating slightly. I'm anticipating the people in the comments now saying, <laughs> I love San Francisco, I've lived there for 20 years, it's my home. No, like, I, I was thinking maybe more, there's been some more miserable parts of my life, like personal things that have happened that was more miserable than going to San Francisco. But I think it, I would say it's probably the most disappointing experience of my life. Obviously, working in tech, it's perceived to be this hallowed ground of innovation and startup culture and people sort of achieving stuff. And it's it's broken. San Francisco is broken. The tech industry broke San Francisco. There are homeless people lining the street. Okay, maybe that might be a bit harsh. American politics and the tech industry broke San Francisco. But the tech industry has such a compounding factor on this. No one outside of the tech industry can afford to live in San Francisco anymore. I can't remember what the number is, but every city in America has like what's defined as a poverty line. And if you're below it, it means your standard of living is sub to what the UN believes to be the right level of existence, basically. And to be above that line in San Francisco is something like you have to be earning, I think it's like a nearly $100,000 a year to be above the poverty line in San Francisco, which is insane and this all comes from the tech industry like it wouldn't exist there's been no consideration no one said like oh maybe apple maybe could have said maybe we don't open our hq near san francisco not in san francisco but it's near maybe twitter was like yeah you know now we're starting to form a decent maybe we can take the the money that we can regenerate into society from paying people ridiculous amounts of money for being tech like people maybe we could have just set up our office in a somewhere else right i understand the business reasons for all being in the same place and stuff but i think those reasons are 20 30 years out of date let's say the people listening are like me right they hear this they're like okay i know what you're saying i agree but again i have this job right now right mm -hmm. like like many people they work in the tech industry and it's like cool so what, what are you asking me to do <laughs> i'm asking you to i think what the book is probably asking people to do is to make sure that you truly understand what you believe in. What are the things? How? How? Okay. By processing all of your life experiences and summarizing it in 10 bullet points. It's that easy. <laughs> it's that easy. Um, yeah, it's, it, this is difficult. But in the book, there's a process of doing it. And I've kind of also talked about it in slightly different ways. In the book, I've made it music related. But I've done this a couple of times now. And basically, by collecting all of the experiences that you've had that made you feel something, whether that's good or bad. And those are the things, interestingly, the way the brain works, those are the things that will be logged in your memory. So the things where you've had extreme responses, extreme emotional responses to things. So the things that made you feel really good, the things that made you feel really bad. Write those down. Try and think of like 30, 40 of those. And then you can start to summarize them. And whenever I've done it and whenever I've done it with people, they find it very easy to summarize those into clumps. So you end up with like sections where you're like, oh, okay. So I find where people are badly treated makes me feel bad, right? And in what way they're badly treated, you can kind of see a pan and it's like, oh, when people who are reporting to me are not, uh, do not receive the the praise they have for the work they've done, right? How do I, like, what does that make me feel? What does that mean? And then you end up, you'll find that you end up with these kind of like clumps of stuff. And then you can kind of summarize that into, try and summarize it into one line. And then you've kind of got like these 10 points where 
they'll be your manifesto. These are the things that are really core. These are the things that have made you the 10 things or eight things, five things that made you really feel something, whether they're positive or negative, and you can summarize it. So I've done it before, modeling it like you're writing a book. So you write, you list your experiences, and then you change the experiences into a blog post title. So imagine you're writing a blog post about that, so you give the title, and then you can kind of collect those titles into chapters. You give the chapters titles, and those are probably the the points in your manifesto and then you give the book a title which is probably the title of your manifesto and then in the punk leadership book i've kind of expanded that like gone down the fact that this is like an album so you're thinking of like song titles and then album titles based on those things so it's just summarizing those things that mean something to you the things that have given you significant those experiences that show you show you those things that you really care about basically i, I find this topic fascinating right like about finding your meaning and, and figuring out what your values are, what brings you fulfillment in your life, which of course can be your job, can be things outside your job, can be your own business, can be anything. I think there are many ways to do that, right? If I understood it, this is like your suggestion on how to do this. Start with those experiences, which you can probably quite easily come up with, which have had meaning and stuck with you. So, mm-hmm. so, so the summary would be write down as many of those experiences as I can, just like kind of like free form writing yeah like yeah. write them down as just like the, I want. just a note like saying like oh and you don't it doesn't it's just for you so okay. it's like oh that time that my boss said this or right. that time when the company that i was working for did this also outside of work though that's up to you right because right. you can you can build a personal or a professional manifesto or you can mix the two hmm. and actually it kind of depends so i've run some workshops with people one of the things about people earlier on in their career maybe have less professional examples yet and they tend to right. find it easier to mix professional and personal stuff. And then other people, people who have had longer careers will find a, a wealth of experiences from their professional career so they can isolate it just to professional. But then also there's value in doing it for personal stuff as well. Personal stuff might be a slightly different experience if you just are just focusing on the personal stuff. And I have to be honest, I've not, I've not personally just focused on a personal manifesto. I've only ever done it in the context of work and professional environments cool i can see how a mix might make sense if the goal is also to have a deeper understanding of your Mm -hmm. i don't know if purpose is the right word like what brings you meaning and fulfillment and what you care about i can Mm -hmm. imagine a mix might make sense yeah yeah and i think the thing that i found is that the older i've got the less there's any difference between those those two things and i did this a long time ago so when not that long ago about six years ago i think i did i did one of these and one of the core things that came out, which actually isn't really in my manifesto anymore, is like, well, it only fell out because it became less important than other things, but it was like, don't tolerate arseholes. And that was a professional thing because of some experiences that happened where I had allowed arseholes to continue to exist in a professional environment when I shouldn't have done. But obviously that's the same on a personal level. Like after writing that manifesto, I was like, on a personal level, I reassessed some relationships I had and I was like, this isn't worth it. And got rid of some personal relationships I had because those people were assholes and I wasn't getting any value from those relationships. So yeah, I think as you get older, the two I think will end up merging into each other. For me at least anyway. That's an interesting uh, plug maybe because one of the things I had on my mind, for those that don't know, you also have a blog, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Software is easy, people are hard. Yes. Dot com. Yes. I, I do still send people to this blog, by the way. <laughs> and honestly, it's funny you mentioned the asshole article because that's the one I send people <laughs> I have that bookmarked genuinely because I coach people and mentor them and it comes up quite a lot, a frustrating amount mm-hmm. of just 
people acting a certain way because they uh, have knowledge or they yeah. gatekeep something or yeah. yeah they lean on what they're good at as permission to just be an arsehole basically. yeah so yeah i'm gonna link that also in the show notes i think that's one of my favorite articles i'm always sending it to people yeah. i think interesting that blog was the reason i came up with this process originally i was writing articles in that blog to try and understand why i was good at what i did and and what leadership meant to me and the more I wrote these articles, they actually ended up clumping into categories in the blog. And those became the points that were the manifesto points that I ended up with. So it was that process of writing, then classifying it, and then cleaning up a little bit was exactly the process I went. And that's where that process came from for me. So to recap that, you said, write down as many experiences as you can. Let's say a mix up to you if you want to make more professional, more personal, or a mix of both. Start grouping those things together based on mm-hmm. what feels right. So maybe you have a few things about people being assholes. You have a few things about how good it felt to acknowledge people's work and help mm-hmm. them and see them grow. I can see a few groupings there for myself as well, like helping people grow, helping people become a better version of themselves, mm-hmm. helping people be acknowledged for good work and sponsoring them and helping them on their way to success. Let's say that for me, for example, I'm already getting those themes in my mind. I'm doing this process um, I'm trying to remember the next step, right? I've grouped them. Mm-hmm. Then maybe I've even made one title for the whole thing. Mm-hmm. That becomes the title of my manifesto. Let's say the title is, let's go with the typical coaching one, help people be the best version of themselves. Mm-hmm. Let's say that's my title of my manifesto. Yep. I have that. What do I do now? Yeah. So this is then wh- whatever you want to do with it, right? <laughs> but the, what I what the book does, it talks a little bit about a couple of things. So coming right back to what we're talking about, like joining a company, If you have your manifesto, when you go through the interview process, you can look at what, I mean, most companies will have some sort of like values and principles of leadership or something. Or if it's a smaller company, you can gain these from talking to the people that that are in the interview process. And then what I would recommend is just sitting down, writing the list of things that the company believes in, looking at your list of your manifesto and going like, how many of the things that's on my list am I going to have to drop to join this company? And you will have to drop some. Like you're never going to find a situation where your personal values, your personal experiences, the things that you personally believe in align with the company 100%. You have to make a decision like what percentage is okay, what percentage is good enough to me to feel good about what I'm doing in this new company. Do you, do you rank the things in terms of importance? Because I think this is a very also easy way that you can kind of lie to yourself, right? Like if you just suddenly get a, a couple of job offers and you're like, hmm. I don't know. This one has a lot more money and, well, maybe what they're doing isn't that bad. I think we have to be realistic that in an interview process, either party is pretending and you don't get a full realistic picture of what's going on. So what I'm not trying to suggest, I think, is to to really do like a detail. Like, I mean, I'm sure some people will probably work in this way, but this is not really how my brain works. I'm sure you could weight these and come up with numbers and work out like a arithmetical like a process to come out with like joining this company is 90% joining this company is 70% what I'm more saying is like I want people to be making conscious decisions whereas I feel a lot of people are kind of unconsciously making these decisions currently I know I was for sure I think that explained the tone of the book to me basically felt like you wanted to shake every person in the tech industry and and tell them to wake up yeah wake up is not is not the right word. I think waking up is a really difficult thing because then you get into the woke and people being awake exactly. and stuff. I, and that's not I what was I'm doing that on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's not about waking up. It's about 
looking in the right direction. I think it's like, stop looking towards the cool technology, right? Don't, like, if you look at a job listing or in you're in, you're in an interview and someone says, oh, you're going to get a, an M2 MacBook Pro when you join, if that is anything to do with your decision-making process to join that company, you need to check yourself because that's not important, right? You need to be understanding, like, what is the company doing? What impact does this have on society? And am I okay with that? Does that fit with what makes me comfortable? Because if you find a company that is doing something that's positive society and you are comfortable with it, it's going to make you feel so much happier in the long run. You're going to enjoy working there so much better. And actually, the, the amount of money or the technologies that you're using isn't going to be that important. It'll just be a better experience for everybody involved. I'm sure that you also have friends who work for very large companies, places like Facebook, where I've had debates with them of this whole thing of like, you know, you're working, like, that's not a, why are you doing that? Mm -hmm. and, and, and I mean, the answer is usually, well, if they wouldn't hire me, they just hire someone else for this position. But it's that's super a, like, good, um, super good compensation. And as you said, the tech is good. The environment is fun. People, the people are cool. People are really smart. I'm learning a lot of stuff. But what are you going to do with that knowledge? <laughs> right build like, evil products i think when you're in a situation where you make a decision like, yeah you're right like i have friends who work at meta as well but when you make a decision to join a company that acts the way that met or meta is a, a an interesting one because i actually I mean most of these companies are interesting like i don't i very rarely think a tech company sets out to be evil and this is kind of what the, the book is talking about. I don't think anyone in this situation has gone like, right, Zuckerberg didn't want to get into a situation where he had a platform that could eventually mean that people can buy elections. That's what Facebook now is. Or they put some mitigations and some governance in place that means this is a bit less likely to happen. But at certain points in the history of Facebook, you could basically model buying a vote from somebody on Facebook which is ridiculous. And I know this has happened historically and it's not a new thing and media has been always under the influence of political parties and people, media industry has always had people with very strong political views running it. But it is so much more powerful now that you can be so much more targeted with it. And I don't think that's what Zuckerberg set out to do, but that's the situation you're in. And if you go and join that company and you don't question that, I mean... Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you question it? So I think it's not enough to say, oh, I just want to work with smart people. Getting paid is pretty cool. And I get to use a cool MacBook and fly business class every time I go somewhere. Like, that's fine. I, Having said that out loud, like, and actually, like, in the book, there's a couple of points where I ask if you've made a certain decision whilst reading the book to just put it down and put it back on the shelf, ask for a refund. Because there are people who completely are able to separate their work life and then and their purpose comes in their personal life. And then going to work and earning money is just a way of getting the purpose for their personal life. And that's absolutely fine. If you have consciously made that decision, and that's what I kind of want to challenge people, like consciously making the decision. If you're like blocking it out and saying, okay, I'm going to this company to work and earn money so I can do whatever it is, like make bee houses so that we save the bees. Like, <laughs> so I was watching, uh, I, I'm a big F1 fan and Sebastian Vettel has started building bee houses on the tracks of Formula One and that's why it came to mind. That's his purpose is to 
work on ecological things and I find it beautiful it's a it's a lovely thing so the bee houses wasn't a negative thing if that's genuinely your purpose is to build bee houses and you go to meta to t- get the money to build your bee houses that's fine as long as you've consciously realized if i go to meta and make this piece of technology i understand what impact that's going to have yeah i wonder if that's also a dangerous way of reasoning because i, I mean okay then is the positive net good of the that's the thing like as long as it's better than like i'm i'm okay if you're building if you've if you've reasoned it and you're like yeah okay fine like i like whole societies will collapse but there's more bees and if that's what you (laughs) i i I feel that like the bees is cool the bee thing is cool but if that's the if if that's the um if that's the decision that you've made and you've made it consciously and, and that's that's fine. Like, I think that's okay. As long as you've drawn the whole picture and not forgotten about what the technology you're doing actually does. I think Meta is an interesting one because I think their dive into the metaverse has probably neutered them in terms of mm-hmm. being an evil company. And I think they are less evil now because they've just got lost in, in the technology choices that they're making. Uh, but historically, Meta was a straight up evil company. Not intentionally, I mean, one of the other things in terms of like making the trade-off and making a decision, one of the things that stuck with me from the book, you had three categories, people, cash, planet. Mm-hmm. Maybe you can, yeah. Yeah. It. So this comes from what we talked about earlier, that all companies, their primary goal is to make money, unless they are a non-profit organization or a charity or a B Corp, which we can come on to in a second. And I think there is, there's... And this is kind of interesting because I, ha- I went through this whole process trying to understand and I looked at um, a concept called st- sustainable development, which is looking at how you balance out against different pillars, companies. So they're not the primary goal is not to make money, but it is to look at societal things and stuff. But sustainable development is a mind bogglingly complicated, very academic topic. And I was just like, I can't. I classify myself as a reasonably smart individual and i just like couldn't comprehend the whole topic there's research papers on it and there are some political parties trying to implement these kind of concepts and there's always these huge diagrams of things connected but then i kind of dug into a little bit more and and what they're kind of saying is like if a company is to try and balance equally genuinely equally money which we all need to make like we are in a whether we like it or not and i'm not anti-capitalist but capitalism has some failings we're in a capitalist global society mostly and we need to make money to survive like you can't do anything without making money especially on a larger scale if you want to have impact there has to be some cash flowing but if you can say at the same time we have a some kind of purpose or goal that supports society and people and then some kind of goal that supports the environment and and the planet's and try and make sure that those these three things are equal, I think we can do better because currently what we have is we have a situation where lots of companies say, oh, no, we do care about people or we do care about the environment. But actually those thoughts are only so that they can make more money. So, for example, look at BP, British Petroleum. Like they have these kind of like green campaigns, but that's just greenwashing. They want to be able to sell more oil. That's the goal, to sell more oil, make more profits. And they can try and do these like solar panel things where everyone goes, oh, they're doing nice things. So I'm going to buy their petrol because it's better for the environment. That's nonsense. And then the same thing with companies and how they treat people. Companies are not treating people because they care about people. A company, and I'm talking about company as a 
this entity again as a company. A concept. As a concept. They are treating people well because they need to employ people. And if the people don't come and work for them and it gets out that they treat people badly, they will go and work for their competitor. That's why the company treats people in a certain way. That's the, the objective. They're only treating people that way so that they can employ them and people come and work for them. There are people within that organisation that will genuinely care about people and have a humanitarian side to them. But the company itself doesn't care about people. The, 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 the model of the company, the, the mechanisms, the system of the company is just to make money. So I had another point I wanted to talk about because I think another interesting point of this is let's say I do the manifesto, right? I have a mm -hmm. good idea of my values and what is important to me and what I think will make a positive good in the world. I also think about people, cash, planet. Mm -hmm. so I've also looked at the company from those angles. I've done the interviews. I've spoke to them. I'm like, okay, I think this is a positive impact on society. The cash is also pretty good. It's a good trade-off. And I, I mean, okay, they, they're even trying to be like carbon neutral, all that stuff. So they're aware of the, you're, you're already shaking your head at that part. I mean, car carbon neutral is always offsetting, right? Fair. I, I guess I, what I'm saying is, let's say that hypothetically, I've then joined a company where at the point of joining, I'm like, cool, I've done my homework. I've done everything I can to make sure that Within the area where I live, this is a fairly ethical choice given my personal trade-offs. I've, I've thought about it. I've been conscious about it. I'm happy with this. What do I do then? Does it stop there? I'm no, done. you just have to continuously check your manifesto every time. Because what you'll find is that companies change and you change. Your views will change. And the company will change. The company will have new objectives. They'll have different goals. The people within the organization will change. You have to make sure you're checking these things all the time not every day right get your manifesto out in the morning go like, mm, yeah they're fine we're good like next day but you need and also your manifesto will change over time so like you have to revisit this you have to change and stuff and also you have to question and push and they're going to be i think this is where on a day-to-day -day basis anyone in a tech company is making hundreds of decisions even if you're an engineer, you're deciding what library you would use. I mean, that's actually a good example, right? Even on a junior engineer level, you might pick a certain library. Like, who built that library? Like, what's, is it performance? So therefore, does it have less of an impact on, on the environment? You know, is... Green engineering. Yeah. It, what's this package contributing to? It, and it's, this gets very complicated, and I don't expect people to really think about this all the time. But if we are working on an open source package... For example, like React is Meta. And if you're contributing to the React infrastructure, are you supporting Meta? All these decisions, you should be thinking about them when you make these technology choices. Like, that's an extreme example, right? Like, I'm being obtuse just to make a point. But like, every single day you make decisions and you should be playing them. You should have this kind of like moral model in your head when you make those decisions. People you hire, people you fire. Like, what are the, what's, do they match up with your beliefs? There are decisions you make every day that can switch whether what you're doing has a positive or negative impact to society. I think it's a really interesting point to bring in other levels and other positions because something in the book, I think you said, I don't want to like directly quote you, something along the lines of the fault lies at every level. Yes, to, uh, a, to a different certain extent. Right, I mean, I think that's a good example. Of course, if you, even if you're at a junior level, you still make decisions. This Again, this idea of like being conscious of your decisions that you're mm -hmm. making. But uh, what should someone in a junior position do over time? Like they join the company, it seems pretty good. But over time, 
Maybe the leadership changes or the, the company goal changes. Maybe the things push from top down, they don't agree with them. They mm -hmm. see the company going in a more evil direction, let's say, mm -hmm. just for the sake of using that word. What, what then? Do I just leave? Or, oh. or question it. I know there's a challenge here about feeling comfortable challenging stuff right. in the workplace. I, I know that that's a difficulty, but you should be in an environment where you can challenge stuff. That's the, that's the point. And also, like, if you're not in an environment where you can challenge stuff, trying to push towards creating an environment where you can challenge stuff, asking people, your leads, the people around you, your colleagues, how we can get to a place where we can challenge these topics. Sometimes maybe you need to try and build the tools to be able to challenge the thing. So you have to build the environment and you have to build the trust and you have to get to that point before you can make the challenges where you feel comfortable questioning it. But I still think everyone at every level should consider challenging. And I'm not going to be annoyed with anyone who for whatever reasons feels that they can't challenge something but at least think about it like can you really not challenge something i feel like if you're in a position where you do challenge and those challenges go completely ignored then i feel like maybe quitting and getting uh, a different job is I not mean, a bad a, approach it's, it's a very good sign right <laughs> right but i also don't want to i know i'm fairly privileged in, if you can yeah that's the thing like i think there's a difficulty here and i do understand it that the way that I've approached my work for the past 10 years is knowing that I'm fairly good at what I do. I can present myself fairly well. So if I was to lose my job, I'm not going to be jobless for that long. Though I'm getting on a bit now. Age is going to start becoming a factor fairly soon. But I, I approach all of my workplaces with knowing that if I get fired, it's not a big deal for me. There is a, a privilege there that I can be more challenging. I can question anything that I do see that is a problem and i know lots of other people may not feel that comfortable but additionally in the book i talk about social connections and trust and stuff and those are things that you can use to build environments where you can challenge it's kind of funny it's a book talking about leadership and then it ends up talking about being nice to each other and socially supporting each other and trusting each other but that is was kind of core to the punk scenes as well. anyway but yeah i think yeah if it if you can't challenge stuff in your workplace like if you can't have a, a sensible discussion and challenge a decision that is being made, then it's a it's a bad workplace. Let's say that I'm not the manager of a team. I'm someone in a team. Mm -hmm. And I still think the company itself has good goals. Mm -hmm. But the environment I've joined, unfortunately, is not that great. Like mm -hmm. the people around me aren't questioning or maybe there's like not a lot of trust in the team. Mm -hmm. What can I do then? If your organization is as good as you think it is and is doing right things, you can question authority. And this is something that I think is really important. As a senior lead, I am more than happy to listen to anyone who wants to come and talk to me. If you think your boss is a dickhead, come and tell me, right? And we can talk about it because there's two outcomes. Either your boss is a dickhead or he's not. And if he's not a dickhead, I can explain to you the reasons why he's not a dickhead and we can find a common ground or he is a dickhead and we need to fire him. So skipping levels, going above people, talking to people, if you really are blocked and you can't deal with stuff in a certain situation, you can't deal with an individual, going over their heads is absolutely fine. And you should feel comfortable doing that. And I know some people don't feel comfortable, again, privilege, blah, 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 but do. And I'm saying this from someone who's a senior lead. It's great. It gives me also additional feedback of what's going on and I can see these kind of things. And also I'm not going to, it's also worth saying, like if you just come and tell me you think this person's taken, I'm not going to fire them without actually assessing the situation and understanding what's going on and, and trying to find a resolution before that. So no one is going to have an issue. Yes, 
if your lead is an asshole and we can't find a resolution immediately, it might put you in an uncomfortable situation. But as a senior lead, I'm going to try and minimise that. I'll try and move things around. I'll try and take you out of that situation if I can. Um, but I am going to just try and find a resolution if that comes up. I would say that's definitely, if anyone is listening to this and in a senior management position, I feel like that's one thing which is really important, right? Is like actually that's kind of in your hands to be the one that makes that clear. Because yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I've been again in, in conversations with people where... I think in the companies I work for, I can actually say, I think it is very, very welcome to speak up and talk to management if you think that there is an issue or something that you disagree with to even do a skip level. And, and talk. Like people are very hungry for that feedback mm -hmm. as managers and as leaders. But I think sometimes senior management forget that it can be very intimidating yeah, for, yeah, for yeah. example, juniors to actually come to you and say, I, I've, I think I've seen a problem or something bad happened or yeah, I don't yeah. agree with the direction, et cetera, et cetera. There is also a slightly challenging thing here as well in that if you do come to me, the first thing I'm going to ask is, have you spoken to this person? Which I know can be awkward and uncomfortable, but that'll be my first thing to say. So if you haven't spoken to that person because you don't feel comfortable, there's a problem there we have to resolve. And I'm more than happy to mitigate but the first thing I'll do is I will challenge you to go and speak to that person. And I will try and get you to do it without mitigation first. Because a significant number of situations where I've had this, if someone has then gone and spoken to someone and said, oh, I have this problem, the other person's gone, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realise. And they've immediately corrected the problem because they just weren't aware and they weren't considering it from that point of view. And the second that they were presented with that point of view, they're like, oh, okay, got you. Now I understand. Not every single time. Sometimes there are actual problems that need to be resolved, but almost all the time, it's just a misunderstanding. Cool. Before we go deeper into that rabbit hole, because that is also a very interesting topic, <laughs> there's something else I wanted to come back to. So we've talked a lot about making conscious choices, figuring out what's important to you, figuring out what you think could be a positive impact on the world and where you can help and trying to let's say, use your manifesto to make the trade-offs when you're uh, making that conscious decision about what company to join. The other side of this is also like founding a company or mm -hmm. being an indie hacker, like, mm -hmm. like doing your own thing, right? Mm -hmm. Is that more or less morally good? Do you think more people should be doing this? Is that part of the solution? Like, don't join Meta? Yeah, don't make I mean, your own thing? If you have, a, if you have an idea and you've, you have an idea that is positive and you think it's going to have a positive impact well then just do it yeah i mean again <laughs> privilege i know it's not quite that easily but at least think about doing it look to try and work out what the barriers that you can remove to get to a point where you can do it for sure what about being a creator or i'm thinking of these non-traditional paths for example i want to be uh, i want to do podcasting i want mm -hmm. to write i want to write blogs i want to make youtube videos one of my main goals is you know what i actually i think i'm just done trading time for money i think i'm gonna like build up as many kind of like side projects as i can make enough to live off and i'm just gonna do whatever i want with my day is that mm -hmm. morally a good thing is that helping or you're like no don't, don't well do if that. what you're putting out there is positive then yeah and also i would also say don't overthink that because entertainment and arts is a positive contribution to society. Like just doing something creative, just doing something artistic and just doing something that people enjoy. I mean, there can be downsides to it, but like generally that's that has a positive thing. If you are giving people something that they enjoy and that's rewarding to them, then yeah. So basically don't be putting out hate content. For yeah, <laughs> obviously. As long as the, the thing you're putting out there is valuable and aligns with your, the yeah. things that you think are yeah. valuable to the world. Yeah, yeah. 
for example, hopefully like this podcast. Potentially like this podcast. And these these kind of things. Then the only thing that, that is difficult there for some people is finding the time. But I would say like if you can find the time, you should just do these things. Because the barrier to entry to all of these creative things is almost zero now. Like you can start anything with nothing like you need if for example if you want to create video content you just need a phone and we're no longer at a point where having a phone with a camera on is i mean it is a privilege for some i understand that but for most of the world having a camera with a phone on is not a privilege like everybody has a camera phone and you can and the video the quality of these cameras is so high that you can create video content you can create audio content it's so easy the barrier to enter is almost zero I mean, let's again be meta and use this podcast as an example. It's uh, one micro SD card and 15 euros an hour for the yeah. podcasting space to try it out. Yeah, but also like even, and, and this is fairly high tech for a podcast, right? You can record a podcast on an iPhone or or any kind of phone. Like it's really that simple. So you're basically if, saying like, fuck it, go do the thing you just, think. Just do it, like just do it. And I've had it, this has been, for me, this has been a bit of a revelation because throughout my whole life, I've been, playing around with some kind of creative stuff i find it very useful to do creative stuff because i find testing creative mediums artistic mediums helps me be a better communicator and it helps me be a better communicator in my workplace so one of the things that i've historically done a lot of is i would write in my workplace i'll write blog posts to try and express ideas and share them with people and stuff and what i've started doing recently is i've started recording videos so doing like youtube-esque type videos that i would then share internally within the company to get ideas across and and that's been super valuable it's an extra different method of communication that i can use on top of it so yeah just do it and the thing that i was talking about this revelation so for years i've been doing that in private i've been making music i've been writing stuff i've been messing around with graphic design i've been making videos and stuff and then the beginning of the year i was like i'm just gonna start sharing this stuff like, I don't care what state it is. The book is part of that. I have a funny suspicion the book is nuts and terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but now it's probably not going to stop me from putting it out because because uh, I have to. Oh, that's interesting. Maybe that's the answer. I think you anticipated where I was going with this. This is still quite new to me. I've known you for some years, right? Over the years, I've seen you do going backwards in history at this book, blogging, other podcasts, YouTube videos, techno tracks, DJ sets, also music videos that you've made for your music as well. I feel like there's more that I'm even forgetting. You were also playing around with podcast ideas. There's been so many creative ideas that you just seem to, when from the outside, even knowing you as a friend, you just never seem to give a shit. No, I, 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 I do, but I don't give... I think this is something that comes with age. Like, I don't give that much of a shit. Like, I've, I'm past caring about what other people think about the stuff that I put out. Do you have an inner critic? Like, do you, do you have Absolutely. A, okay. Absolutely. I thought maybe you were one of those, like, no offense to anyone else, but maybe one of those freaks that don't have that voice in there. No, 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 no. Like, it is always... stupid. It always there. I've learned, I think, a little bit to mute it. How? Uh, not drugs or alcohol. No, not drugs or alcohol. We can talk about that as well if you want to. <laughs> um, <laughs> but no, I'm, I'm completely sober now. How do I mute it? I don't know. I don't know. Actually, that's a very good question. It, what helps now is, this is going to sound maybe slightly negative, but if you put something out on the internet now, no one's going to find it. 
It's a void. <laughs> like, no one will find it because there's so much content out there that whatever you put out has to be incredibly good. It's kind of funny, right? The fact that you can put out anything and, and literally it's going to make no, unless it's amazing, it's going to make no impact whatsoever. So no one's going to see it. No one's going to see it. No one's going to judge it because there's so much stuff out there. Maybe that's what's changed my perspective on this. This is going to be a huge segue. But I, I was listening to another podcast a few weeks ago talking about, I can't remember who it was, a very famous tech YouTuber, I think. And he was talking about how his theory is that there is a class system coming to the creator economy. So there is like the creator of a class, the ones who have already made it and already have an audience. Mm -hmm. And so they get seen mm -hmm. and more and more people are coming into that over the years and mimicking them. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of creating a creator middle and lower class. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is why I'm mentioning it here, talking about the tech industry and, and uh, like how it eventually becomes kind of evil, even if it's not intended to. Mm -hmm. This is giving more and more power to the big platforms like YouTube, for example, yeah. because they can, for example, a change they just did recently, they removed the control of the creator to place adverts mm -hmm. at certain parts of the video. I think, I mean, people will probably be correcting me if I'm wrong. I believe that you only have very limited controls now. Like you yeah. can basically turn them on or turn them off. Yeah. I think you can only disable mid-roll ads, but you cannot disable beginning and end ads, mm -hmm. which for some kinds of content is frustrating, but it's like turn it on and use it and make mm -hmm. pennies. Mm -hmm. Or just turn it off. Like, also, you we don't can only care. turn it on after you've right. built a right. massive following and what's the word, momentum for YouTube with your videos. Yeah, I just think that's an interesting point of like... It is. And there's also a lot of people taking massive advantage of these people. You can... Uh, so, for example, like one of those projects where I could, like, that I've started releasing my music. I've been making music since I was like 16 and it's always terrible. I've just never felt confident enough to release it. But it's now so easy to release music. And as part of that, I found all of these services where basically you can pay for promotion, you pay people to get on their playlists and stuff, and 99% of it is a con. And you are just, they are rinsing these people because it's such a emotional thing to become famous with the creative thing that you're doing, that people will spend so much money on this stuff. And it's the same, there's support, like so many classes for YouTube. And actually when you start to get into the technical elements of YouTube, you need assets and video assets and stuff to create this kind of stuff. And there's a massive market for that. And although that market has existed always for professionals, it, you can see it being targeted at this lower, I've never heard it called like a class system, but yeah, definitely like just less good creatives. Yeah. I thought it was a very crazy idea and probably getting it wrong, but to me it just took out as an, I mean, just weirdly listening to that and then reading your book it's that to me is another example where the thing is there originally to be like, we're disrupting TV and, and, and all that. And then, yeah, wow, amazing. And you can build your own audience and fan base and be an influencer. And isn't it amazing? And yeah. over time, yeah, this is sounding very negative now. But yeah, no, I mean, YouTube is a difficult one because YouTube is always like, is men to disrupt television? Like the revolution will be televised, right? That's what, like, it's, it's a, in my book. But it's still a platform where you can share ideas, it's still a platform where it's fairly unregulated in terms of what you can share. Like, you can't be mean and you can't be nasty and you can't harm people with the content that you create on YouTube. Well, well, well yeah, well, it, you can't implicitly harm people with Talk the content. about weirdly monetized child YouTube content. Yeah, there's a lot of strange stuff on YouTube and some questions, but the problem lies with this advertising revenue stuff. 
and that to to become successful on YouTube and to make money from it, you need to feed the algorithm. And what feeds the algorithm isn't necessarily positive stuff. It's kind of interesting because it's also not stuff that will change people's perception and views on stuff because what they will respond to is the stuff that they want to watch anyway. So it's all kind of done on how long you watch the video and how like all YouTube videos have a peak where there's like a load of people watching and they'll drop off in the first couple of minutes when they realize that because there's so much rubbish on YouTube. Like a lot of times you get a minute and you're like, I can't like the quality of this is about I can't even watch this. So how long you keep people on that video is really important for your algorithm and how much you go. And to keep people there, you have to give them what they already want. If I go on YouTube and something is like outside of what I'm looking for, and weirdly what I'm looking for is mostly Las Vegas buffet reviews. <laughs> um, Wait, hang on. <laughs> Let's just take a brief segue. Las Vegas buffet reviews. It's amazing. It is like recently discovered. I, I'm obsessed with YouTube niches. No, uh, oh, it's incredible. And then you get and you're like, they are so well fed these youtube newses but yeah there were people who go like las vegas has obviously buffets that are like (laughs) normally really good value for money so and they will basically go and eat everything that's on in the buffet and they will give it a review and stuff and it's just absolutely fascinating and you can also see the different qualities in the different restaurants so they all the different uh, hotels and all the casinos in, in Las Vegas will target different demographics so there are like cheaper ones and higher end ones so there's ones where you get like unlimited lobster it's a bit more expensive it's still great value for money and then you kind of see all of these different things and now I'm obsessed with Las Vegas I've been to Las Vegas before and interestingly a much better experience than I'd were in San Francisco because Las Vegas is exactly what it says it's, <laughs> there's no pretense it's not hiding anything right so now I really want to go back to Las Vegas because we didn't go to the buffets because I thought wow. it was a bit like eh, like a bit below me to go to these buffets. I just had this image of like, it's going to sound terrible. I have this image of like a certain type of American being in the buffets and enjoying that buffet experience. But now I'm like, I'm so upset that I missed buffets in Las Vegas. And now me and my partner really want to go back to Las Vegas just to experience all the buffets. Not the gambling, not the shows, just the buffets. I've, I made a mental bookmark to immediately destroy my YouTube algorithm directly after this recording. I mean, I need to know. <laughs> I need to know what's going on with these buffets. It's Yeah, that that's, that's one thing. And then there's something, what else weird do I like to... And then the other thing, I guess it's not so weird. Me and my partner are really obsessed with traveling couples. So like these... YouTube traveling couples. That's a huge thing. Yeah, it's a huge thing. But there is a few of them that are doing this so well. Like really interesting content, like amazing production, actually likable people. I do think there's a, maybe it's some kind of like theory of everyone who uses YouTube. And I feel like every single person probably has one subscription. Like one of their subscriptions must be a travel couple. Yeah, I think it is, yeah. I'm actually kind of curious because we talked a little bit about your own YouTube adventures. Mm-hmm. Have you kind of like experimented with this idea of becoming one of those travel couples slash... Well, uh, like I, I, me and my partner have a travel couple video. If you search you YouTube, you can find it. Um, do, do you want to put the plug out? No, no, because it's not it's not an <laughs> ongoing thing. It's, it's not. Right, it, we right. realized, well, it's interesting. It wasn't, we didn't want to do like travel content. What we wanted to do, the channel is called Fitness and Burgers. Both of us are really, really into fitness. We really enjoy CrossFit. Fitness is a big part of our lives. But also, I love food, as can be explained by the Las Vegas buffet videos. Like, I love food. I love eating terrible food. My nutrition is awful. And we wanted to create a YouTube channel, which was kind of a balance 
of fitness because all of the things there's very little in the middle and it's true if you want to focus on fitness you have to get your nutrition right and eat miserable food but that's not how our lifestyle was so we wanted to balance the fitness with the food content and say this is okay like if you want to balance these two things you can but we did one video where we went on a, a hike in iceland and then went to a burger restaurant at the end and it took me four months to edit that video and i know i'm it was the first time i was ever doing it so i didn't really know what i was doing but i was like oh being a youtuber is an actual job and it takes so much effort like video production is it, it's a very labor heavy thing to to do and i was like oh yeah we're that's we'll just do that one we're done <laughs> I, I have a way to segue us back to the <laughs> i think it is relevant because one of the things we that got us onto this topic is a fact of like i was asking you how do you not give a shit mm-hmm. and your your point was there's so much stuff on the internet you just put it out in the void and no one's gonna see anyone that is also fascinating to me right i mean i think that's a pretty good I, it's a pretty good way of just being conscious of the fact that you can just do it and most people won't really care. And if they mm-hmm. do, it's kind of, a, again, a privilege. Like, it's an honor that someone would spend their precious time listening to your content when there's so much more content out there. Yeah. And I think it's, I think that's the thing. And, and it's like, if your content is bad, they're going to spend 30 seconds on it and they're going to be like, oh, it's bad. And they won't come back to it. But they're not going to come back to you and go, oh, your YouTube video is terrible. I mean, some people might, but not the people you know and respect and, and care <laughs> about, right? They're <laughs> just going to go on and go to the next thing. But if your content is good, they will give you positive feedback and that's 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 good and that's positive. And, and one of the other parts of this, I'm, I'm intentionally steering it back to the book because, I mean, we're talking about how people might not see your content and we're then talking about YouTube and I think they're like the obvious thing there is also, I, you also mentioned like the bubble and algorithms and stuff like that also maybe makes it harder for smaller creators to pop up. But in the book, you also wrote about, so there was tech minimalism and tech mm-hmm. isolation. I think those mm-hmm. are two things I wrote down. Mm-hmm. Maybe you can, because I feel like that's somewhat relevant here. The, the isolation one is, tech minimalism may be less so, but the isolation talks about, and this is kind of interesting, and I don't have amazing solutions for this, but I, I, I think in the book I've identified the problem and then very weakly gone, oh, maybe you could do this. So much of the content and so much of what people consume are through platforms these days so social media platforms even through google to an extent is a platform that is controlling what people see if facebook meta tiktok google don't want people to see your content they're not going to see your content like it's really hard to to get out there and even if you have been able to convince the algorithm to show your content you are still at the behest of these platforms that they might just tomorrow go oh no today we don't like you as getting involved in the YouTube stuff and doing it some myself, I actually started to investigate, listen to more about the creators and who are doing it. And they tell these stories of like how you put one video up and it gets a million views. And then the next day you put a video up and it gets 5,000 views. And then the next one takes 5,000. You're not in control of your voice. You're not in control of your destiny in these kind of situations. And you can play the game and understand the most, but trying to remove and, move away from those platforms and gain control more of your audience direct control of your audience thinking about slightly more old school technologies really like thinking about building websites again and thinking about using newsletters thinking about potentially looking at like fediverse type technologies where you kind of are more in control not you're still not so in control but you still are a bit more in control of it it's not like elon musk tomorrow is going to come and just take all of your following and do whatever he wants with them so I think there is something to be said for the future about how we 
decentralize these things, how we move away from those kind of platforms and, and own the, the stuff that we are putting out is difficult. Like it's really difficult and getting there is going to be a challenge, but I think we need to start thinking about it for sure. Also, the reason I asked this is because we were talking right in the beginning about self-publishing and mm -hmm, I wondered mm -hmm. if that also came into this of like, I want to own this, I want to put it out there. But the bad thing is I self-publish, I'm going to put it on Amazon. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Are you then going to have to feed the Amazon yeah, machine? Yeah, I, I, and, I, and I'm actually probably the easiest way. And if I want to self-publish a physical book, Amazon's self-publishing platform is incredible, even though it's a bit strange with what's considered in the, what I talk about in the book. I probably have to publish it on Amazon. Also, almost a direct quote from your book, Amazon has a horseshit purpose. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, I can't remember now specifically what it is, but it is terrible. Like their so, some, Something about helping the world. and They um, want to be the best employer. They want to yeah. be the, the like, yeah, something about being the best employer, which is nonsense because they, you hear stories about Amazon employees having to wear diapers to be able to get their shift done because they can't afford the time to go to the bathroom. I don't know whether that's current. It was a few years ago these stories came out, but Amazon is most definitely not the best in company to go and work for. Another thing you mentioned as well is making conscious trade-offs mm -hmm. and you could also argue there if amazon is the best way to dis distribute this book and get it in front of people and it gives amazon a very small cut but maybe this gets in front of some people's eyes and it changes mm -hmm. something or it inspires people yeah worth, worthy worthy trade-off yeah potentially but i think what i'm super key on doing before i publish it onto amazon is i need to make sure i'm a hundred percent happy with right. with that and i don't think i'm a hundred percent there yet i think i need to process it a little bit more there are other ways that i could do it i could just do it as a a digital gumroad like yeah gumroad or lean pub or something right. like that for sure but one of the things that's important about the book is the visual element to it so i put a lot of effort and consideration like one of the things i really wanted to lean on was Punk has such a strong visual aesthetic is to try and translate that into a slightly more modern version of that. And throughout the book, it's quite, it's not an illustrated book, but there are visualizations and illustrations throughout the book that I feel I, I was, when I was creating it, the intention was always for it to be a physical work. So I really, I want some people to be able to experience that as a, as a physical book. And there are other print-on-demand services, but they're just not as good. One more point on the tech isolation topic. So let's say that we choose to use these companies' services, right? Like mm -hmm. we use Facebook, we use Twitter, or whatever social media platform you pick. We are in the tech industry. I think we're then, by default, more aware of how it works, the fact that they use your data, mm -hmm. your data is the product. Something that has always been a bit of a challenge to me is how do I make people understand that and care who aren't in the tech industry? I feel like that's also part of this battle, though. Making everyone care, explaining that message to people who aren't even aware that tech is evil and tech is doing bad stuff. Um, yes. I'm in two minds about this topic. Maybe I'm not the best person to talk to it because I flip between this is the most important topic in the world and we've already lost this battle. So... Let's just park let, it and move on. Let, let me put it this way. I've had this conversation with my parents before, mm -hmm. right? Where I say, well, I'm not trying to stop you from using Facebook. I just think it's good for everyone to be aware. I don't want to be a preachy son, mm -hmm. but just to try to, um, maybe you know what I'm, I'm going with this, try to have that conversation of like, okay, but you do realize by using Facebook, you're giving them a lot of your data. Mm -hmm. The answer I usually get back is, well, like, so what? Mm -hmm. 
if you'd have asked me this two years ago, I would have been militant about talking about trying to make people understand the value of their data and trying to build data economies like private data economies like i'm more than happy for some company to have my data if they give me something in return for it it's super valuable to them it's really really important to them so like sure and i think there's an interesting dynamic around this that has become really common is that when you go to a an e-commerce website now they'll say give us your email we'll give you 10 percent off the first order and i'm like that's a cool deal i'm happy with that like you can have my email for a short period of time spam me and I'm going to get 10 euros off this new pair of jeans. Great. Like, I'm cool with that. That's a trade that we've made. But we need to expand that to all of the data to try and make people understand that there is this value and it's a, it's a, it should be a trade-off. Like, I give Facebook my money. What does trade Facebook give me back in, in return? Maybe Facebook is a bit more of a fair trade. I don't know, because people do get stuff out of Facebook that is useful to them. Right. But they have to, as long as they're understanding that's what they're doing, then that's fine. So if you'd asked me about two years ago, that's what I would have told you. Now I'm like, I think the battle is lost. I don't know whether we can get back to that point because people have devalued their privacy so much that I don't think there's much, I don't think there's really a hope of coming back from it. So you think it's got to the point where data is just, it's also too valuable of a currency, let's say, that even by applying the principles of punk leadership, and trying to change companies from the inside and making a positive difference. Because the only, the only way I can see it getting better is also to found alternatives which some, somehow give better value but do less data processing. And that's a conscious choice of the yeah. people in the company to be like, we're not going to take your data. Yeah, to be able to do that, you need to make Facebook better. Yeah, yeah. Good luck. Yeah. And I think it's like, I would love to be proven wrong on this topic because I think it's a really important topic and I think there is definitely a model that makes sense that you can get to where people understand the value of their data and they sell it to companies. So you're saying, right, not necessarily for cash all the time, but like, I'm giving you this, what am I getting in return? And I think interestingly, Apple is trying to do some stuff around this with the no track kind of um, stuff and is actually putting quite a lot of pressure on certain app developers and stuff to think about this in a slightly different way. However, we're so far down this, this journey also, I'd love to be proven wrong. Though. Also, companies like that, you see like Apple, and you say, oh, well, that thing they're doing, that's not so bad. And then you look at what they've done with the App Store and the monopoly they have. On, yeah, 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 yeah. And you're like, oh, yeah. no, they're all so bad. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think, yeah, but then that's two different topics, really. It, it just feels like there are so many things to tackle. Yeah, yeah. And I think then that's where we cut making a full loop back to the personal manifestos and stuff then that's where having a really good understanding of what you believe in and what the company believes in is a really good track. like apple is a i think a really interesting example because they do actually care about privacy but they care about privacy as a product right that's what they're selling caring about privacy maybe say a bit more about that privacy as a product so one of the things that apple has spent a long time ago and i think they eventually lost this but they pushed back against the u.s government to not unlock phones and not give the US government a backdoor, even in specific criminal cases, they were like, no, our system works like this. So they, they were pushing back and they weren't allowing backdoors. I think they've lost a little bit of traction here against the US government, but they were fighting for it and they were looking. At it. And by design, Apple products have privacy at the core of how they're set up. But that's like that because that's what they sell as a product. So they're selling you a device that secures your privacy. 
So they're not doing it, potentially not doing it because they love privacy. They're doing it because putting this feature into an iPhone sells more iPhones. So the privacy is the product. Okay, got it. But then going back to what we're saying, right, then this is why it's important to have your personal manifesto and look at the the company manifesto. If you offered a job at Apple and privacy, technology privacy is the thing that you really, really care about, Apple is potentially a good fit. But you're right, in the App Store, they have a monopoly and that might not fit against your personal beliefs. Pick your battles. Exactly, and it, but it, it's your beliefs. Because I don't like, from my point of view, I don't actually have a problem with Apple's uh, billing thing. Like they've built their ecosystem they spent a long time building up this Apple ecosystem that they are now then lending to people to sell their products. It's a platform that a- Apple built the platform. Apple built your customer base. If you want to release an iPhone app, it doesn't exist without Apple. So I think 30% of your revenue from the app is a fair ask. I feel like what you're essentially saying, and it's probably the summary of this entire talk, is pick your battles, but pick Yes, exactly. But actually choose. Choose the ones... Actually you... consciously pick yes. a battle yes. and then fight the battle. Yes. Don't just be like, I'm shrugging my shoulders. Mm. There's nothing I can do about this. No. The pay is good. Um, I've got a cool new, off. cool new MacBook Pro, so it's all fine. There's this really lovely parallel between the punk industry and technology, which I think this was probably the core of what made me connect the two. The, the punk industry came about really because of prog rock. And prog rock was a fat middle-aged white guy music that they got. <laughs> How to, dare you! <laughs> they got, which became overly complicated, and it became a point where the studio equipment and expensive synthesizers and and really complicated musical arrangements became what was key to that music. And there is good prog rock, and it is enjoyable to listen to. But at that point, if you were a musician and you wanted to start a rock band, you needed thirty thousand euros worth of technical equipment before you could get anywhere near the standard of the music punk went no we're going to strip back three chords shitty instruments no production and screaming and it made rock music once again uh, like completely accessible to people without musical skills some people will question whether that was a good thing or not but it created an entire music industry that went on to have a massive impact on how music is made, how people approach music, how young people approach music. We have exactly the same parallel in software development, where we are very much in our prog rock phase of software development. And we've made things very, very complicated, and it makes it really difficult for people to come into this industry because there's so much they need to learn before they can get a baseline job. Sticking with the theme of musical genres... You said that we're currently in the prog rock phase. Mm -hmm. I feel like there's two questions. One is like, what do you want the next phase to be? What do you think is the next phase if we do nothing about it? The next phase if we do nothing about it is we just continue down the same. I think, well, I think that I always see the, this whole, like, um, the last scene of Wally, the Disney thing with the robot, where there's this scene at the end of the vote where there's like humans just on a, like flying things, just being whizzed around and they've got a TV screen in front of them and they're not, functioning they just have this thing at the time i was like haha and then as every year passes i'm like that's not that wasn't a goal like whoever wrote that scene was it was meant to be a warning not an objective for society and i feel that we are slowly year by year approaching getting to that point phones are a, a real contributing factor to this and i think also the way that 
social media works is a real contribution this whole like dopamine generating thing like i generally feel we are heading towards that scene in wally i think that's where we're going if we're not careful infinite scrolling perfectly optimized yeah 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 and also potentially if you're going to be really i think one of the things i think really worries me is a lot of science fiction was written as a warning to society and it feels that some people have taken it as like an objective and there are some really scary models of things that are going on right now where you're like, these were warnings. Like, Asimov's rules were warnings. We shouldn't be in this problem. We should really be thinking about what the future holds. And we're so obsessed with the technology, we're not really worrying about what the outcomes of these things are. And they just seem to be organically happening. And that's really worrying. And then if we apply that to AI, if we just let AI do what it wants to do, we don't think about governance, we don't think about what we're doing, we don't think about the, the impact it's having on society. We will be in that last scene of Dali within decades, I think. It sounds like it comes all the way back around to that conscious choice, right? Like figure out what's important to you and where you think you can make a positive impact. Maybe mm -hmm. that's AI. Mm -hmm. Go out there and do something about it. Yes. Pick that battle, yes. go fight that battle. Yes. Make it better. Yes. Stop us from becoming yes. those blobs in the chairs surrounded by screens in yes. Dali. And I think also, when I, I want to reiterate, like, I think, I feel like I'm personally becoming like a neo-Luddite. And it's just like, <laughs> I just want to burn the technology down. But that's not because I'm scared of the technology. I'm scared of humans and their implementation of the technology or lack of implementation of the technology. People not thinking about what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. And I think the technology is great. And I think there's so many societal problems that potentially AI technologies can help and support with. But we're not doing that we're just making it make pretty pictures and that's worrying so one last thing on the spirit of being punk mm -hmm. i i talked about it before how i definitely felt the spirit of punk in the book I and mean, <laughs> you you tell people who don't care to basically fuck off and close the book mm -hmm. go get a refund for all you care one thing that also really stuck out to me and i really liked right in the beginning of the book your dedication was essentially about your dyslexia if mm -hmm. i understood it right yeah, anything you want to share about that? I soften that intro is <laughs> one thing. It was a bit struggle before. Yeah, so the dedication of my book is dedicated to my English teacher when I was at school. And it probably wasn't super clear to everyone at the time, but I was dyslexic. And it was at a time, I'm not that old, but it was a time where dyslexia was understood. People knew what dyslexia was, but in the general classrooms, people weren't really thinking about it as a thing. So I was labelled as a troublemaker in those lessons. I I struggled to engage with English lessons because it just was incredibly hard for me. And I was also really bad at school with putting effort into things I didn't see the point in. And I was like, I'm never going to, funny enough, when I was at school, I'm never going to write a book, so I don't need these skills. So I was just being disruptive and not putting enough effort in and stuff. And it wasn't that. It was because I was dyslexic and I didn't... Actually, it's probably two things. Because it's like, and also if I didn't see a value in a topic, I wouldn't necessarily try. I would try hard enough to get the grades I needed to, to proceed. So that really annoyed teachers and I had a really bad education experience. And yeah, I don't know what I want to say. Like, it's very interesting that I got to, to a point now where I've written a book because it was hard. Actually, this is why I asked because you've had success in your career. Mm -hmm. You've written a lot of stuff, articles, blog posts. You've written a, a whole book. My experience of working with you has been one where you've been quite confident in, in saying to people around you and to me, yeah, I've got dyslexia. If you see me mistyping stuff, you'll, you'll get used to it. Kind of cracking jokes about that, like, you know, that's Phil speak, whatever. Mm -hmm. Let me know if something doesn't make sense. You seem quite upfront about it and quite open about it. I just wondered if 
If you had any advice to those out there listening who maybe also have dyslexia or maybe they're telling themselves, I'll never be able to write a book. I can, I, I feel like it goes a bit hand in hand with this whole thing of like, don't give a shit, right? Like put your stuff out there regardless. Yeah, it's complicated. I know quite a few people with dyslexia and, and some people will probably find the, the topic of potentially writing a book with dyslexia very, very daunting. Like it's, it, it, I don't want to say it would be impossible. Everyone has the ability to do it, but you are going to need support. And the way that I've got over it is writing. So I have two things like that I pushed myself to do when I was younger. And one was write because I was really bad at it. When I first started writing, I wrote stuff and I'd come back to it and I'm like, I have no idea what I wrote. Like, I don't know what I what I even meant when I was writing this. And the other thing was talking, because I was very shy. I didn't really like talking in public. I, I hated using the telephone. Like, I was really shy. So I was like, right, I'm going to focus on doing some public speaking type stuff, get better at that, and also the writing stuff. So I put a lot of effort into writing and learning to write and getting better at writing to the point where now, with some support from technology, I can write stuff close to where i want it to get to and that's that was good took a lot of effort though any any tips if i'm someone with dyslexia and i would like to start writing more and maybe even write a book any tips there's two tips that i want to make one is just because you've got dyslexia and you don't feel like you can write doesn't mean you have to learn there are other ways that you can communicate such as speaking speaking video audio like if it's too daunting don't and i think one of the things that is really important is that we've societally got to a point where written communication is kind of the default slack in the work environment messenger it's fine to call people find the things that you're comfortable with so don't feel that just because you're bad at it you feel that you have to learn so that's the first thing like just find other ways and explain to people why and that should be helpful and i also think moving away from written technology the default might actually be quite helpful to us anyway and then the other thing is like if you then say okay no but i do want to learn and get better at writing and stuff just think two things are really important just do more of it just keep writing and also then put it out and share and and get feedback for it and also read that's the core thing for me i think actually was probably more reading became important than the writing for learning because it i can, like reading is really difficult for me because it's just like it just takes a long time like i find it i have to really focus and i find a lot of the time i'll read three or four pages and i really haven't read anything and i have to go back and like it's just it's just difficult it takes a long time and the more i read the easier it got the the, the better it got i think if you've got dyslexia and you want to do something just try and do it but also i think it's okay to not I think that's the cool thing. Like, don't feel just because I'm dyslexic and I finally managed to write a book. It took me like 20 years of trying to build up to this point. And it's a lot like the book is, I suspect, not that good. So it's a lot of effort to get to a point that's not the biggest output. I think it's, it's fine to not do that. Just find the things you're comfortable with and find communication styles. That goes for everybody, not just dyslexic people. If you're not comfortable writing as a communication technique, use different techniques. Draw stuff. Paint stuff. It's be a bit weird finding it, putting a painting and showing it to like in a workplace environment. But if it's a way that you communicate, try it. Nice. On that note, the last thing what I'm wondering about is what is your process in terms of, in general, writing this book and doing all of these side projects? Because I mean, okay, you're a director at the tech company. Mm-hmm. 
that's a full-time job mm-hmm. if arguably if not for maybe some more hours in there as well sometimes yeah. i mean we talked about all these side projects you've been doing writing blog posts speaking mm-hmm. podcasting writing this book all of that stuff right youtubing making music how do you find time for all this stuff i get up early cool <laughs> <laughs> sorry there's no there's no there's no magic there's no magic wand there's two things to this i get up early i wake up at five o'clock most days and this is not just to clarify this is not <laughs> everyone should get up before end. like if you're not you're losing out blah 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 get up whenever you want but when i was younger i always used to wake up at five o'clock and then try to force myself to go back to sleep because it's like oh no Five o'clock too early to get up. Seven o'clock, eight o'clock is more sensible time. And then I feel like rubbish when I woke up at seven o'clock. So my body naturally wants me to wake up at five. I just get up at five. Normally I go to the gym at that time and, and do stuff. So I just have some spare time in the mornings that, that I find. So that's part of it. But I don't recommend that everyone changes their, like that's just nonsense. Get up when you want. Do set your schedule as you want it. The other thing is just about prioritization. These topics are interesting to me at this time, so I will find time to prioritise it. Everyone has a finite amount of time, but you can prioritise things. Uh, And I think you've got to be okay with that. And it's fine. Like, if you prioritise, and I do quite frequently prioritise sitting in front of YouTube and watching Vegas buffet videos for, like, six hours at a time. But that's what I needed at that time. And then sometimes two weekends I'll just write for two days, and that's fine. Because those were my priorities at the time. Cool, yeah. We've talked a lot about the creator economy. We've talked mm-hmm. about how you're, you're writing, you're finding also a lot of enjoyment through these like creative projects. Mm-hmm. You're also having a nine-to-five job. Have you ever considered dropping the nine-to-five and, and trying to go full creator, <laughs> podcaster, writer? No, because I'm terrible with cash flow and money. <laughs> and I need someone to just give me some money at the end of the month or I'll just be a disaster. Fair enough. <laughs> so that, that's the main thing for you. It's easier to say... This is how I bring in the money. And of course, I make as much impact as I can for that. Everything else is staying creative and stuff that I care about. Yeah. I've tried to run my own companies in the past reasonably successfully. I've done some partnerships with people in the past, but it always came down to cash flow. And I need to be in a situation where someone else manages the cash flow. And if I'm a creator, freelance creator on my own, then... I have to get you have to get to a point very quickly to employ someone to do that for you and I don't perceive that that will ever happen in the future. I'm not saying if I put something out and it goes bonkers and I get to a point where the income outweighs my inability to manage it then great. But it's not your primary goal. Yeah, and it's not like I mean it probably is it's probably like to be able to do my own thing and run my own thing is probably what would make me the happiest. But I have to understand that in the context of my capabilities and skills, there's got to be stuff that happen outside of my control for that to ever be a possibility. Um, Because every financial decision I've ever made has gone terribly, terribly wrong in my personal life and in my professional life. So I have to be aware of that and not try and kid myself that I'm tomorrow going to be able to make that transition over. So some people can do it. And if you were looking for like a guide to how to do that, there's other people to talk to. I am not the other person, but no, I have restrictions in whether I'm able to do that. And that's the reality. Fair enough. A very fair and well-rounded answer. (laughs) Cool. Last question. Mm -hmm. So let's say people got all the way to the end of this podcast, right? Something I would like to do is always leave a little gem at the end for people, kind Mm -hmm. of a reward for those people who made it all the way through. And I think a good way of doing that is I would like to know from your side, what would be your one key takeaway? Like if there's one thing you want people to 
have in their heads and actually internalize from this entire discussion? What is it? I think it's about these conscious decisions, I think is the key for, for me. I see so many times, I've seen so much of myself historically, and I see so much in other people where they're not making really conscious decisions about what they're doing. And I think there's a lot of times they, they think they're making conscious decisions. So they're kind of like packaging up and hiding stuff. And I think what I really like, if, I, if anyone takes anything away from the book or from this conversation, I want people to really sit down and say, am I really making conscious decisions about my professional life, the impact I'm having on society, even your personal life, like what you're doing on a database, how you're treating other people, like consciously, are you making the right decisions to create a positive impact on society? I think that would be the biggest thing. It's the conscious decision thing. Amazing. Yeah, thanks for coming on. I, I think the only thing to do is plug your stuff, right? How can people reach you, find you, find your stuff? Yeah, uh, two ways. Difficult because like we talked about trying to decouple from a platform, but find me on LinkedIn, Philip Bennett. I have a newsletter which is called Software is Easy, People are Hard. Actually, I think it's called, because there's a limit in the number of characters, it's called Tech is Easy, People are Hard, because I can't have the old title. That will probably change to be punk leadership in the future but you can join that now or go to punkleadership.com and there will be an update on where we're at with the status of the book nice awesome all the links will be in the show notes uh, thank you so much for your time thanks for coming on i hope people found this useful definitely i did i know what i'm taking away from this thank you um, for me. yeah thanks very much i think that's i think that's a wrap Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I really hope you enjoyed it. If you did, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It does really help us out. If you didn't like the episode, then don't. <laughs> I'm kidding. I actually really would like to get your feedback, especially if you have any ideas in terms of guests you'd love to see on the show. Best way to do that, shoot me an email, mike at imperfect.club. I also have a newsletter where I'm sharing tips, resources, information about upcoming guests, stuff like that. If you're interested, head to imperfect.club forward slash newsletter and check that out. Other than that, a huge thank you again to Phil for coming on today's show. This was the first episode I ever recorded. So he had essentially absolutely nothing to go off in terms of how good this podcast would be. Please show him some love. Go to punkleadership.com. Check out his book. You will not regret it. It is a really, really good book really insightful, super interesting stuff in there. So again, punkleadership.com for Phil and his book or imperfect.club for everything about this podcast. And yeah, see you soon. <laughs>